Hello and welcome to this uh, discussion on fostering a better relationship with your money to achieve financial freedom sponsored by PSG Wealth. My name is Mariwa Gavaza, writer with the Business Day and Financial Mail, and I'll be your host for this very important and uh, pertinent discussion. Joining me today is Nadev Desai, who is the head of sales over at PSG Wealth to discuss how relationships with money develop, what implications these developments have on financial freedom, and what lessons one can learn from and implement to develop a healthy relationship with money uh, to achieve financial independence or freedom. Nadev, greetings to you today. Hello, Mudira. How are you doing? No, we've been uh, we've been good on this side. I think it's the first that I am uh, talking to you this year, and uh, you know, so allow me to say that I hope that the year has started on a you know very good note, and I'm really glad you know that we are attacking the relationship that people have with money because it is January. I think before we started recording, you were t- talking about how some people see it as January uh, because it's, you know, it's long, <laughs> you know, it's a long month for. Yeah, very much, you know, I, yes. that, that we talk to, they say, you know, they want to make sure that they start the year off on a good footing, you know, they, they feel the pain and they don't want to ever go through this January again. So let's hope we can give a good, <laughs> a good effort on, on, on building better relationships with money today. No, certainly. And I think, you know, like I said, very important discussion to be having. I think in our previous discussions, we were also talking about uh, issues around things like wealth transfer. We're talking about, uh, you know, the mentality that people have, um, you know, around money. And all of it is very important because it all comes together in how people make investment decisions. Investment decision even feels like it's far away if we aren't even addressing some of the core uh, things that are there. So perhaps that's where we can start going all the way back uh, to the beginning, Nadev, to define what a relationship with money is and how does it develop. Yes. So I think everyone knows what money is. Um, you know, if, so if we can quickly start there. So money is a concrete construct. I mean, you know, we know that it is part and parcel of what it means to interact with others where we ex- exchange goods and services. And it's been around for thousands of years. However, each, every single person has a different relationship built up with money on what goods and services money can actually deliver and the circumstances actually that one finds oneself in that allows one to achieve or deny those items to oneself or one's family. And so at first port of call, most people will think of this relationship with money and whether you deny or allow yourself it to be an affordability issue. And so this is an element that drives the relationship for those more on the poverty line and for wealthy individuals, obviously less so. So one of the recent um, studies that 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 has come out is to actually take the idea of from a psychology perspective and the Maslow hierarchy of needs, and that that the relationship of money actually evolves whether more money is spent on wants versus more money is spent on needs. And a healthy relationship with money will ensure that money enables the range of wants and needs for each individual's Maslow hierarchy of needs to be addressed through an individual controlling what they want to enable being comfortable with the results that they want 
and being able to define that relationship with money in a succinct way that they can revisit and be comfortable with on a day-to-day basis. It is an interesting, um, you know, it is an interesting relationship, and especially given the fact that uh, we all need money at the end of the day, and there are many pervasive narratives around money. You know, some say that, you know, it's not the key to happiness. You know, some people say that there's more life to money. Others say that the whole pursuit is to just get more money. But maybe a, a pertinent question is to say, can a person, especially given how complex life is, things aren't always linear in life, right? Is it possible for a person who has a bad relationship with money to achieve financial freedom? I'm just reflecting uh, right now on some relationships I've had with uh, accountants who often say to me, I'm so good with everyone else's money, but my own money is a, and financial affairs are in, are in shambles. So keen to get your take on that one. So, so I'd like to maybe talk about the relationships with money from people with two different aspects of it. So, let's the first one. Let's it's going to be the less obvious one, and that's going to be the one where you actually have so much money, but you have so much fear that you will never have enough. And many financial advisors actually talk of tales of investors who are in that situation, that they actually don't end up living a good life that their money can enable. And examples of people who are living that life um, are those that typically would have lived through the Great Depression or lived through a war or you know, went through a period where, you know, the, the, the house that they were growing up was, was uh, repossessed, high interest rate environments, etc. So they tend to have a very fearful way of looking at what money can do for them. And typically what that does is it's about money, rather, rather about what money can do for them. And this fearful behavior then drives poor investment decisions with a tendency to not want to invest in growth assets, um, because market volatility is going to mean that their capital fluctuates on a day-to-day basis. When you don't invest in growth assets, you don't then end up with the benefit of compounding interest rates. And the end result is that money doesn't have a chance to do what it could for those individuals, for them to live the lives that they truly would like, and for the generations that come thereafter and enabling intergenerational wealth. So that's the one side that one needs to think about when, when, when one talks about an example of of a fearful relationship with money actually means that it will never be enough. On the other hand, you you get more the typical example that most of us go through. You know, you mentioned the the, the one of the accountant, and there's often the expression also about the mechanic's uh, car that you go to. His car is is, is the worst man to maintain. Um, <laughs> so um, you know, these are very much lessons that each and every one of us need to need to think about, and it's pervasive in society. And this is probably the one that 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 is more relevant to to everyone that we don't actually have enough money. And why does that come about? So the first example I can think about is 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 peer pressure. So if you think about the world that we're living in, it doesn't embrace delayed gratification. And if you think about the, the the example that that I spoke about in the in the explanation of of having a relationship with money and the Maslow hierarchy of needs, many poorer families will actually position to themselves and their children that they cannot have something because they cannot afford it. And so, in a society like South Africa, where there's a growing middle class coming out of poverty, there is naturally a need to buy those goods and services that were previously denied. It may be things like the right neighborhood to move into the latest car or the best private schools for their children. 
So what that means is that, you know, you sacrificing something, maybe a future um, financial goal in order to achieve something today. And you are obviously using credit to, to, to buy um, the lifestyle that you want to live today at the expense of the life that you need to plan for through your whole life. And so as things become easier to buy with easier access to credit, shopping that's available 24 hours a day. So coming to the need to own things previously denied um, and that positive dopamine effect that, that, that happens when you constantly are buying and satisfying the need for something today, it becomes increasingly difficult to control the delayed gratification and not to give in to impulse. And so more and more people are doing this and those around you are doing this. Peer pressure can increasingly drive poor people's behaviors around money and lock in that cycle of endless poverty. The second thing that 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 um, leads to us constantly having a bad relationship with money is actually how society has evolved to become increasingly cashless. And if you give me a time, a, 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 some time to just talk about this quickly. So, Modibo, when was the last time you went into a bank and went to see a bank teller? Um maybe three or four months ago not the best experience like i i limit those bank experiences as much as possible once once every six months if i can <laughs> yeah exactly and, and, and that is the the benefit of the society that we're moving towards you know you can do everything online as far as possible you know that's what we want but one of the unintended consequences is about how we actually face um, our budgets and our bank balances. Now, the last time I had a bank book where I had to have it folded in South Africa was in 1982. And after that, I got my first uh, card and I used an ATM ever since. But a couple of years later, a couple of decades later, I went to work in South Korea. And if you think about the East, um, they tend to have good savings habits, et cetera, et cetera. And I got a bank book again that I had to get folded either by a bank teller or by an ATM, but it was a physical book. And I had to see someone physically to show them how that book is developing or or, or declining, that balance and that budget. Uh, and and so I started. Sorry, as you're talking, yes. I'm just realizing that there's probably a whole section of people that are listening to you and are wondering, yeah. what is a bank book? <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, a, it's a very, very uh, a, a strange thing from a, a previous generation where you actually uh, had a running balance of what you had in your check account or your savings account. So, so, so it was a great way to actually keep a, a, a total that you had in front of you and and previous generations they will know what we're talking about but you know modern um, society will talk about well you can get that online you know but the difference is that you don't have to see a teller anymore and so when i went through this experience when i was in in, in south korea i actually ended up becoming an obsessive saver um and I, at at some points i was saving over 50 percent of my monthly pre-tax salary and while this was not necessarily healthy, it showed me the importance of being able to have that thing physically in your face to be able to understand how you're going to be budgeting and being able to become comfortable with addressing your wants and needs. And so a cashless society is supposed to make it easier to actually do this and not the unintended consequences of you live only once, you know, you buy what you want and uh, you can take out easy credit. And so many uh, people have, have successfully 
been able to address this challenge by putting together a 24-hour rule for themselves. So the rule, the 24-hour rule typically says that don't purchase anything more than daily consumer bills without giving yourself at least 24 hours to unpack why you are buying it, what it's going to do for you, and what are the intended consequences of your potential purchase for other financial goals that you may have. So, so what we've now unpacked is both the fear of money as well as, as those um, that actually are the more the reality of society that we've got today where there isn't actually enough money. I like the fact that you've uh, taken us on that, uh, you know, on that journey, giving us, um, I guess, bad relationships from both sides of the scale. You know, the person who feels like they don't have enough and then the person who has more than enough, but feels like they don't have enough, you know, which is quite, uh, you know, quite ironic, but it is a reality that uh, that a lot of people have. And one of the things that I'm appreciating is all these different examples that you're giving us, because in all these stories, you know, we can all identify ourselves and the way that we, you know, approach our own savings and our own relationship with money, you know, are we spent thrifts, are we obsessive savers like you had become in South Korea. And I think maybe we can benefit from more examples of how poor relationships with money uh, are fostered and how these can lead. I think this is where the important bit is, you know, how it leads to financial stress. Because I think sometimes when people are doing some of these things, they don't necessarily realize that, you know, you're putting yourselves under some type of mental strain. Yes, very much so. So, you know, an interesting stat that came out recently, um, I think it was a Forbes study, spoke about how in the U.S. and recent marriages, I think it was a study of 800 marriages in the U.S., over 50% of individuals in those relationships did not trust their partner with money. So there immediately is a distrust of money in what is arguably the closest relationship that you're going to have with someone in terms of a financial partnership, et cetera. And so um, it shows that through time, we've built up as a society a distrust of, you know, other people can't work with money and we want to control it ourselves. But we need to keep ourselves in check as to what are the good things that we can do and that we can learn from others in order to build better relationships with money. So. A very interesting study was done in the in, in the US. I don't know if you've heard of the Ramsey Solutions Institute. And they did a study of about $3,000 individual dollar millionaires. And what they looked at is what are those things that dollar millionaires do or don't do that make sure that they don't lead to financial stress. And those are the things that I think we, we, we let's just unpack for a couple of minutes and um, that will help us get to a sense of, of uh, how we can make sure we're on the front foot rather than the back foot, that we start mistrusting our partners, we mistrust ourselves, we uh, get to a mistrust of what the financial uh, planning uh, process can do for you as, 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 as an investor. And so the study of 3,000 individuals, you know, most people are going to go, well, you know, these are people, they were trust fund babies, uh, they won the lottery. But no, these people, they, they did not focus on those individuals. They focused on people that were ordinary income earners. Um, and, and, and some of the stats that came out is that less than 15% of those dollar millionaires were ever in senior leadership roles in their careers. 
two thirds just went to ordinary state colleges, i.e., they did not go to Ivy League colleges, the Harvards, the Browns, etc. And and just about everyone never earned more than a hundred thousand dollars a year in their in their whole career, and yet they became dollar millionaires. So what did they do? Well, the first thing is you'd be surprised if I say this, but they stayed away from debt. You know, people keep continuously talk about good debt and bad debt. So if we talk about an example of debt, seventy three percent of them never ever had a credit card in their whole life. So, you know, you can say that you can use a credit card uh, in, in, a, in a responsible way, but, you know, the, the road to, 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 to hell is paved with good intentions. And often, you know, that's how our, in, in, people who end up getting credit cards end up in a bad situation from a financial situation where they end up leading, getting to financial stress. So these people just typically don't put themselves in that position in the first place. They pay themselves first. They try to save up for deposits, et cetera, for the things that they want and they have delayed gratification. The second thing that they did is they started saving early. They made it a habit and they made it a priority. And they also made it a meaningful amount. And if we can just take two examples. So one, I um, saw an ad recently on, on one of the, 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 the instant messenger uh, platforms out there. And it spoke about how you can invest as little as 250 Rand a month in order to renovate your house. Now, I don't know about you, Madiwa, but um, to, I'm going to have to save a lot of 250 rands in order to get to the point where I can make meaningful renovations to my house. And, you know, different people are going to understand that differently. And so it is being able to understand what money is going to do for you and that um, you're going to have to put serious contributions away in order to achieve your financial goals. So there's no point in saying, well, I've put away money for retirement um, and you get to retirement and it's not enough. If you are not saving at least 15% of your monthly salary for 40 years, you cannot expect to retire on a similar kind of income to what you had while you were working. And so these investors in the States, these dollar millionaires, they understand that. The third thing that they did is that they typically ended up with supplementing the income in one or other way, whether it is running that coffee shop stand on the weekend or in getting enough investment so that they have dividends paying out on a regular basis, but they're finding ways to supplement the income that they are uh, earning on a regular basis that they've made a habit and they keep on going with that through the through their whole career. They don't end up with, I'm going to take a sabbatical and I'm going to see where things go. You know, they make sure that they've got money coming in on a regular basis. And then the last one that I found very interesting, you know, and, and if you think about us as South Africans, you know, we we talk about now we've 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 had a, a hard month or we've had a, a successful event. So let's go spoil ourselves and we go eat out or we go celebrate with the boys. But these dollar millionaires, on average in the US, they didn't spend more than two hundred dollars a month eating out. So if you think about that, you know, if it's you know, roughly it's what 3,800 Rand a month in, in South African terms. But if you think about what $200 can buy you in the States when you eat out, that's very, very little. You know, that's what people will say is what, what uh, Starbucks coffee. So on the one end, you've got people who are spending more than that just on Starbucks coffees in a month. And on the other end, you have these dollar, dollar millionaires who are in total spending um, $200 and less a month on all their eating out. So you can see the difference in terms of conspicuous spend 
ease of spend versus those that actually are in control of their money and therefore develop health relationships with money. Yeah, it's a, it's very interesting. And I'm going to look for that study on my own, the, 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 the Forbes one that you referenced, because, you know, some of what you are talking about reminds me of a book, you know, it's now oldish, the book, but I think the principles still survive. Uh, Thomas J. Stanley, The Millionaire Next Door. Yes. And uh, yes. And, you know, a lot of what you were saying reminded me of some of the findings from there. So it is, uh, you know, a good, maybe a good reference point. And one of the things that does come out from a book like that is the fact that uh, there's a lot of societal factors. I think you had alluded uh, to some of these at the beginning of today's discussion. Maybe we can get into some of that, um, you know, around, um, you know, some of the things that are uh, fostering these bad relationships with money. What is society doing to us? Are they telling us that we need to flex? Are they telling us that uh, <laughs> what's going on out there? Very much so. So, so you're absolutely right. Societal influences can be a good or a bad thing. Um, and one needs to look at where the positives are and where you know one needs to watch out for or be be wary of the the negatives of a societal culture and 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 uh, the pressures that it can have on achieving financial freedom. So earlier you you, you correct me you know I spoke about my foray into the the east and how you know that positive savings culture came about and you know when we think about China and we hear the forty percent savings rates etc you know, we start knowing how a society can actually foster this versus a society like South Africa, where we have just about a 0% uh, savings rate at individual level. And if we dig the South African uh, uh, scenario a little bit, bit further, South Africa, unfortunately, has one of the highest Gini coefficients in the world. So, you know, for, for the listeners on, on the line, they probably know what it is, but um, it is the disparity of income between the richest and poorest. And so while poverty is being addressed and we are getting this burgeoning middle income market and the poorer are becoming less poor, this disparity does mean that in South Africa, lifestyles that are perceived as successful as having arrived make the cycle of poverty so difficult to break. Because what happens is, like we say, you know, we want to live that lifestyle today. But what that means is that there's a, that is at the expense of the financial goals that should be planned for in the future, where you have to think about long-term savings, where you have to think about investing in growth assets, where you benefit from the, 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 the investing in growth assets that have compounded returns that will help pull that middle class out into the next uh, income level. But South Africa also has some some good aspects to it. I mean, you know, we, we, we continuously hear about how one of the unique elements in South Africa from a savings culture perspective is a stockfelds. And that's just one example. But what a stockfelds does, it derives a, a, a set of communities uh, or, or members in a community together to, to coordinate, to saving, to stimulate the conversation in the right way on what money is going to be doing for them. And what is needed is more conversations like that around uh, good advice and guidance that will, will, will leapfrog a society to continue to developing that great relationship with money. 
So while you have societal uh, conversations that can go in the right way, that still needs to be developed into well, what does this mean at, at, at an individual level as well as societal level. And I think we we have a lot of those tenants in South Africa that we can do that we can absolutely take to the next level just with a bit of of uh, planning. So now let's talk about um, you know when it comes to that planning aspect um, because. Is it worth it to engage professionals just around this to help people to have those better relationships with money? And if the answer is yes, who are these people that we should be seeking out? What are the titles? Um, you know, who, what institutions are we looking for? Um, you know, when we're, when we're seeking out this help. Yes. So it's, it's a really good question. So, so increasingly, you know, our society is becoming one, like we spoke about, you know, we, we can shop online 24 seven, and we can increasingly do everything ourselves. But this is not about money. This is about relationships with money and what money can do for you. And if you think about that study of US dollar, $3,000 US dollar millionaires that I spoke about, earlier, one of the other overriding factors that they all had in common is that they engage the services of a financial advisor. And the one thing that a financial advisor does is make sure that your relationship with money is, is built into such a way that you start being able to understand the plan that you need, and you can articulate that plan to fruition. So financial planner financial advisor those are typical names that you that you will hear in the industry wealth manager is another one that you will typically hear of and one of the certifications in our industry from a financial planning institute perspective which a global uh, designation is that of certified financial planner or cfp it is the epitome of uh, the international best practices from a financial advice perspective and so you can choose to go to, to these experts to address a single need, but you can also then embrace the full services of a holistic financial plan where they help you understand what money can do for you. And that is a much better way of engaging the services of a financial advisor or financial planner. And so, for instance, PSG has been awarded the top wealth manager in South Africa now for five years in a row. I probably mentioned this previously. Um, so if any of the listeners are looking for for, for, for the services or expertise from, from experts like these, they can reach out to us through several avenues, whether it's social media or on our website, uh, where we've got a, 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 a link to be able to find an advisor that's most convenient for any of your listeners. No, that's actually quite uh, quite amazing and quite incredible. You know, the fact that people can have all of these, uh, you know, different options, PSG and others. Uh, but I do think because we've had this theme, you know, through the discussion is some of the habits uh, that are there. We've described the bad behavior, uh, the bad relationships. And we've also touched a little bit on some of the ways in which some people have fostered good relationships with money maybe we can end off there any other stories that you might have just around some of the habits uh, that uh, people are having we've spoken about um, having a financial advisor we've spoken about staying away from debts credit cards i think you mentioned paying yourself first supplementing income those are some of the things is there anything else that uh, perhaps we we might have missed out yeah, so so the one thing is, you know, may, may have intimated it through the conversations, but understanding how much is enough for you. Um, that is <laughs> easier a, a, said a, than done. Is yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. But let, let's rather then summarize the conversation 
conversation with with I think two key takeaways that I think the audience can can can, can you know re remember from from our conversation. And one is try to break the cycle of poverty thinking. Ensure you are raising your children not to think about wealth from a poverty mindset. That it is not about you don't have things because you can't afford it, but you don't have specific things because you choose not to, and you've got a bigger plan. And so, if you think about that, it helps your children then start thinking about what money can do for them. They start building a re better relationship with money, and that is how we can start breaking the cycle of poverty from one generation to the next. It's not about money; it's about what, what money can do for you. Ensure that your, your children are also engaged and, and, and associated with people that, that start developing similar mindsets. So think about how you are embracing your community around you and, and encouraging your community to have better relationships with money. And then the second one that I, I probably want to, 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 to just highlight is that Secondly, you want to understand your needs and your wants. Like, you know, I spoke about how much is enough and check, you know, how that looks on your Maslow hierarchy of needs. Check whether your needs are actual needs versus, you know, just wants that you have and then engage a financial advisor or planner to understand how to articulate this across your, your life and your lifestyle holistically to plan for your lifestyle goals over your lifetime and that of the next generation. So that's where we end off for today. It has been a really great, fascinating and informative discussion around our relationships with money. Uh, thank you so much to Nadir for just outlining some of the ways in which people uh, build and foster bad relationships, but ways in which people can build, um, you know, good relationships. More than anything else, it's what he said at the end, which I think is really key, um, that uh, we need to break the cycle of poverty. And a good way that we do that is simply by um, having having better conversations with money, uh, about money rather, because a lot of the time, um, so a lot of our mentalities come from what we've experienced, what we've seen and what we've been taught. Um, you know, about money. So if we can take, um, you know, be intentional with what we are teaching the next generation, uh, then at least, you know, we can in ensure that uh, we are helping to break uh, some of these cycles down the, down the road. And also the fact that um, he is talking quite a bit about I'm going to call it a lifestyle evaluation, you know, to say what is enough for you because we're not all the same. A million dollars, a million rand is not the same to, you know, to all of us. You know, if you're someone who whose income is at 15,000 rand, a million rand might be a lot of money. But if your income is 200,000 rand, then a million rand might not be a lot of money. What can the money do for you? I think that is the big message, you know, that is uh, coming from, um, you know, Nadev. And also, you know, just talking about, uh, you know, some of the ways in which dollar millionaires in the United States have been able to get to where they are very insightful issues around, uh, you know, not having credit cards, you know, trying to get out of debt quickly or just not having it, paying yourself, uh, supplementing your income. It has really been a great one. So that's been it. Nadev, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you again for the chat, Budiwa. I really enjoyed it.
So that was us uh, with Nadev Desai. He is uh, the head of sales over at PSG Wealth, um, giving us insight into how your relationships with money develop and uh, some of the implications thereof. And that brings us to the end of uh, this podcast discussion sponsored by PSG Wealth. I've been your host, Muriwa Gavaza. Remember that you can subscribe for free episodes on iono.fm, Spotify, player.fm, Pocket Cost, or wherever you choose to get your your podcasts.